All right, let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll continue with the uh, hymn of the month, I Know My Faith is Founded. founded on Jesus Christ my God and Lord and this my faith confessing unmoved I stand on his sure word our reason can not fathom the truth of God profound who trust in human wisdom relies on shifting ground. God's word is all sufficient, it makes divinely sure. And trusting in its wisdom, my faith shall rest secure. Increase my faith, dear Savior, for Satan seeks by night and day to rob me of this treasure and take my hope of bliss away. But, Lord, with you beside me, I shall be undismayed. And led by your good spirit, I shall be unafraid. Abide with me, O Savior, a firmer faith bestow. Then I shall bid defiance to every evil foe. In faith, Lord, let me serve you through persecution, grief, and pain. Should seek to overwhelm me, let me a steadfast trust retain, and then at my departure, Lord, take me home to you. Your riches to inherit as all you said holds true. In life and death, Lord, keep me until your heaven I gain. Where I, by your great mercy, 
We'll continue with the catechism memory work, and uh, we'll actually just combine the catechism and Bible memory work. So uh, we'll just yeah, we'll just start with the bold. You know it pretty well, so it, it should be easy enough. We'll just start. We'll just do all the bold all together at once. The holy evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Saint Paul write, "Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given it to the disciples, he said, "Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me." In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's uh, continue with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. And um, Rebecca, do you want to consult with Eric and make sure y'all are on the same page? All right, so as far as uh, this hymn goes, I said last week, um, we talked about the structure of the hymn a little bit last week and the the three stanzas, how it starts with the foundation of faith, which is the word of God, and then the second stanza is about living out that faith on this life, and we pray for the increase of uh, faith so that during grief and pain uh, we would um, be strengthened uh, for the good fight and and be unafraid. And then the third stanza is uh, moves into keeping that steadfast faith uh, until death. Um, right? In life and death, Lord, keep me until your heaven I gain. And I love the very last line of the hymn where I, by your great mercy, the end of faith attain. That, that the end of faith is the crown of eternal life. Right? So um, anyhow, what I said I'd do this week is talk about the... Uh, author of the hymn, which sounds more boring, but I don't know. To me, it's interesting. Um, If we ever get uh, pews and then put hymnals uh, instead of, you know, printed bulletins, 
uh, put actual hymnals in the pews, which would be nice. Uh, one of the cool things you can do is at the bottom of every hymn, uh, the, all the information about the tune and the text and who wrote it um, is there. And you actually you learn a lot. And it, it's I don't know. I just find it really interesting. Um, so a hymn of glory, let us sing. This is just the one I opened up to for Ascension is actually written by the venerable Bede in the 700s. OK, so that I mean, it's interesting, right, at, at the least that we have hymns spanning from. Uh, well, r- r- we have biblical canticles, so spanning from the time of the Bible all the way until the early 2000s when this was published in 2006. Um, we have a really a, a embarrassment of riches is what my liturgics professor always called Lutheran hymnody. Um, but anyway, the guy who wrote this hymn, uh, Edward Nurmeister, I gotta find find him here. So in the back, there's also all these indexes of uh, tunes and and people who wrote hymns. Um, sorry, not not Edward. Uh, Erdman, Erdman Neumeister, uh, E R D M A N N, and then Neumeister is N E U M E I S T E R. Um, obviously, a little bit German. Um, wrote three hymns, and the reason I bring this up is because. All three hymns are three of my favorite hymns. Uh, there's this one, I Know My Faith is Founded. And then uh, 594 is God's Own Child, I Gladly Say It. Y'all know that one? God's own child, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. You know that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we've sang it here. Um, it's, it's, it moves a lot, lots of eighth notes. Um, but it's all about how uh, the, the refrain is, God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. That our baptism cannot be taken from us. That's our death and resurrection in Jesus. And um, that, you know, all, all the lines. So the second stanza is about sin. The third stanza is about Satan. The fourth stanza is about death. And uh, the fifth stanza is about uh the lifelong comfort sure we have in in our in the baptism we have and uh it's just a beautiful hymn that 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 we have in our hymnal and um i love the third stanza especially um because it's a it's addressed to satan satan hear this proclamation i am baptized into christ drop your ugly accusation i am not so soon enticed now that to the font i've traveled all your might has come unraveled and against your tyranny, God, my Lord, unites with me. I mean, who doesn't want to just... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Steve. I'm looking forward to the day when you actually learn German. I know you said that was one of your goals. Yeah. And you can sing this song in German. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the question is, it was written in German, obviously, because it's German. Yep. Yeah, so translating hymns is an interesting topic. Um, that you you you've hit the nail on the head. That the the difficulty in translating hymns is that they're poetry in another language. So if you're going to do a rhyme scheme, the translation is obviously going to be more loose, right? Um, 
that said, it's not an impossible task. Uh, and you can find, if you dig deep enough, like kind of literal translations of hymns that are not meant to go to music uh, to see how different it is. But generally, these uh, translators, uh, if they're, they're, they're talented, they know both languages really well. And um, they're obviously kind of artistic in the fact that they decide to translate poetry. And um, it almost... So what I think it is, is it, it really creates another hymn. I mean, it, and that's a similar, very similar theme and, and like overall structure to the, to the original hymn, but it's actually a, a hymn that's better fit for the new language, right? Because obviously it has to fit into that new language. And, um, you know, we get some beautiful, like, a, like that stanza I just read, I mean, you still get you get beautiful like things that people treasure for their entire life, even from translate hymns. So it's kind of an interesting thing that you'd think like, well, it's not really the poem that the original author wrote. And in a sense, that's true. Like the translator is definitely an interpreter uh, when it comes to poetry. Um, there, there's, there's no kind of just interpreting it word for word. But I think that almost in a way makes it more beautiful. So... Um, there's a couple of different, there, like there's like a bunch of old, like 15th, 16th century German Lutheran hymns uh, in our hymnal that are all translated by this one lady who's like like the most probably the most famous hymn translator. Her name's Catherine Winkworth. So you can look her up and kind of read about her and like how she thought about this stuff. I mean, it's it's really interesting stuff. But um, the so anyway, yeah. Yeah, my third hymn that, that Neumeister wrote that's in our hymnal is uh, Jesus Sinners Doth Receive. Y'all know that one, right? Jesus Sinners Doth Receive. Mm-hmm. Jesus Sinners... Wait, um, that's not right. Jesus Sinners Doth... Uh, I can't sight read this right now. I got all the other tunes in my head. Mm. Oh, may all this saying ponder... Who in sin's delusions live, and from God and heaven wander. Here is hope for all who grieve. Jesus sinners doth receive. Took me a second. Got there. Um, Rebecca knows my struggle with sight reading. So, uh, <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Uh, that that that's a um, when we talked about that, we almost sang this last week for the prodigal son. I don't think we did, but. Um, just that idea that that's the refrain over and over again throughout this hymn. Uh, Jesus sinners doth receive. That you know, at the beginning of Luke 15, when uh, you get the three lost stories, you get the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son in Luke 15. And at the very first verse of Luke 15 is Jesus. The Pharisees grumbled because Jesus sat with sinners and tax collectors and ate with them, right? And the fact that we are sinners, right? We recognize that. We're not like the Pharisees. And that Jesus would receive us into his presence, right? And to sing that over and over again. So um, Neumeister is not one of these guys that wrote, I mean, maybe, I think he probably did write more, but we don't have like 20 hymns of his in the hymnal like we do of Luther. Luther actually wrote a lot of hymns. We have, I think, about 20 in the hymnal. But um, 
but the three that he wrote are solid, right? So uh, really good stuff. And yeah, you, you actually, if you, if you pay attention to those little things in the bottom of the hymnal, if you don't have a hymnal, you can always get one and, and look at it. And there, there's always some sitting over here. But um, you find out like, oh, I really like this hymn writer. I wonder what else he wrote, right? So like personally, like I really like Isaac Watts. I wonder like what other hymns Isaac Watts wrote. And then you can, you know, see what's in there. And anyway, it's good stuff. Um, for the catechism, any questions or comments on that? Yeah. Which which one of these do you use? Do we use? Which one of what? The divine service settings. Uh, we alternate uh, between divine service setting three and divine service setting one. So, right now we're doing one, and we'll do that till Advent, and then back to three. So, I don't know. Um, I want to say one is on page, like, 187, maybe. Oh, I bet three is 187. I accidentally have, like, all the page numbers to the hymnal memorized. Because I, and we went to daily chapel in college and seminary. So for seven years straight, I sang out of the hymnal every day. So it was like, you accidentally just memorize everything. (laughs) Um, All right, uh, what was I saying? Oh, for the catechism, we have the words of institution. So uh, the words of institution are what the pastor says in the stead of Christ whenever he's uh, instituting, or whenever he's not instituting, but consecrating the elements of the Lord's Supper obviously. And uh, a couple things about this. One, like I said last week, the words of institution are the place that Lutherans always go to for our sacramental theology about the Lord's Supper, right? What is the Lord's Supper? Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, right? It's not complicated. Um, that, that We go to the words of Jesus, and um, we don't we don't doubt them just because they don't make sense to us all the time in a scientific way, right? Um, and he says to eat and drink. So what do we do? We eat and drink, right? The Catholics have their like uh, Corpus Christi festival where they parade the host, the body, the the uh, the bread around in a what's called a monstrance, and uh, we say, why are you doing that? Jesus didn't say parade. He said eat, right? He said eat. And uh, that's, why, that's why I also consume, and the, the elders will help me consume the elements when we're done with the Lord's Supper because uh, he said eat and drink, right? And these things have been consecrated for that purpose in this time and place. Um, so we don't, you know, just go toss it in the trash. It's Jesus' body and blood. Right, we we uh, we eat and drink it, and yeah, we don't retain it for later because then the 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 reason for that, and some churches do, and that's not 
it's not sinful per se or anything, but my argument is that it can be confusing because we're saying that this is Jesus' body and blood, that this has, in this service, in this time and place, uh, in the stead of Christ, the pastor has consecrated these elements to be eaten and drinking, and um, to then mix that with unconsecrated elements and then put that back out the next Sunday and then re-consecrate some of them and then consecrate the other part for the first time. I mean, obviously God can work it all out in heaven, right? And so it's not that bad. It doesn't, um, like I said, it's not simple. But to me, it's confusing, right? I'd rather just do what Jesus said the first time and then... And um, the altar guild can tell you, you know, I, I had them, they had never counted hosts before I got here. And uh, I don't know, hopefully it doesn't take like too much time, but, you know, count, counting, keeping attendance and then counting out the host and making sure that you have like maybe just like five or 10 more than what your average attendance is, is not that like complicated or hard, you know? So um, that's what I hear other like other churches who don't consume which is i think the best practice this is something pastors argue about amongst themselves but um is that oh well it's a lot of work to to keep track of all that and to try and measure stuff out the right way and uh keep track of how many individual cups i'm like i mean it's jesus body and blood like first of all we can put a little effort towards it second of all like once you get the system down it's not it's not that complicated right you know so steve Credence table. Yeah, the credence table is. I'm, I'm going to tell you more about it anyway. Um, I know you said that's all you want to know, but the credence table is great because uh, that, like I said, a lot of you can do the Lord's Supper in a way that is reverent and, um, again, like not sinful at all but that is not necessarily the most clear way, right? And I think a lot of, a lot of churches do kind of just get in the habit of taking the Lord's Supper for granted every Sunday or every other Sunday or whatever it may be, and they just kind of do what they do. And then things kind of get a little sloppy, for lack of a better term. Not like physically that like things are being spilled, but like that... It's not the process is not being thought out, and my argument is just that if this is really Jesus' body and blood, which we confess that it is, and uh, if we are in the very presence of the most holy, wise Creator God, then we should try and be very clear about what things are and reverent about how we do things and where we put things and where we walk and and these kind of things, and not as a legalistic way to say like, oh, if you like do something a little bit wrong, then, you know, you need to go and repent and go to confession or something like that. Like, of course not. Um, God is gracious, and this is the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But um, the credence table is good because what it allows me to do as the pastor is very clearly distinguish what's consecrated and what's not. So that when I prepare the altar during the sharing of the peace or the offering— um, what I do is only put what I want to consecrate on the actual altar. Um, instead of having, uh, 
having to either consecrate too much or whatever. And then we can also have extras over set aside in case we need them in the service, right? So um, that that's all good. I, I like all that. And um, the Credence table, Elkins, Pastor Elkins did a beautiful job. Uh, very nice, very nice table. And um, allows us a lot more flexibility and being clear about what we're doing and, and organizing things. And it also helps the altar look uh, I think a little nicer, right? Because before there was that, um, you had to put everything was on the altar and then there was that big white cloth on top of everything. Yeah. And uh, I think it looks a little nicer when it's just the 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 uh, chalice and the veil there. So that's just kind of a personal preference, I guess. But but anyway. All right. Any other? Yeah, Steve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I just consume it if I can. Uh, it's pretty hard to consume uh, some wine off the floor. Um, I do know pastors who have gone down there and slurped it up. Um, I mean, if it's, yeah, it's just kind of, it'd be hard to do here. Um, but, which, I mean, it's it's out of reverence, right? I mean, this is the blood of Christ. We're going to do stuff with it. Uh, what I do is generally take a purificator, which is the cloth that's set aside for wiping the chalice, and clean it up with that. And uh, the altar guild washes that, and you know, separate from other garments. You know, the the idea is try and keep things, try and keep. I mean, holiness is set apart, right? So you want to try and keep. You don't want to put Jesus' body or blood down the into the sewer system. You don't want to. Um, that's why we pour anything we can out on the ground that is uh, not consumed and uh, so on and so forth. So, yeah. So holiness set apart. We're trying, trying to keep things as holy as possible. Reverence. And, uh, all right. Any other questions on communion practice, I guess? Or the words of institution? Yes, uh, in the LCMS, so it's it's varied throughout history. Uh, after the Reformation in Luther's time, um, it was it was done every Sunday, and and it was done every Sunday for a long time in the um, medieval Western Church. I mean, when it when there was no such thing as other denominations other than Catholic, it was it was done every Sunday, basically from the early church on. Now, in the medieval, late medieval times, what happened was that they were doing it every day, but it was these private masses that the monks would do by themselves, and then the people weren't even invited. Um, and that was kind of a mess. So Luther took it back to like the early church, where it was done every, every week. Um, then different other Protestant denominations started doing it less. And then, I mean, also after the Reformation, you got the Protestants who stopped believing in the real presence. And so they barely ever did it because it doesn't even really matter to them, right? I mean, most Baptist churches, I think, do it around between one and four times a year. Yeah, they do it on the fifth Sunday, generally speaking. Yeah, some do like a fifth Sunday thing. Um,
participated in. It's a very terrible practice. Fifth Sunday, they pass it all out. If you're not baptized, you're not supposed to take it, but they don't know if you are or not. They just yeah. And it's a Pre-packaged, like thing with the. Almost like saltine cracker with no salt, and it's uh, well, just grape juice, and it's. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost, it's irreverent to almost the point of blasphemous. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, th- those pre-packaged things are pretty weird. I mean, I still understand how you read scripture or history, and never get to that point, but. Um, it's not even a good moment. Yeah, even if you think it's just symbolic of Jesus' body and blood, you should still treat it with reverence, right? I mean, that's that's kind of what I always thought is like, even if it's even if it is just a symbol, which it's not, even if it is just a symbol, then why? I mean, it's a symbol of the one true holy God, you know? Right. Well, so anyway, but. But not even really that. Not like a memorial service that you're playing funeral with your children with their stuffed animal or something. It's not. It's really. Yeah, that's probably a good analogy. It it, it is not taken seriously in a lot of um, non-denominational American evangelical churches that that you know that kind of think it's simple. Anyway, so historically, what happened was then when the Lutherans came over to America, they saw that all these other Protestants. Uh, we're doing it four times a year, once a month, maybe twice a month, whatever it may be. And Lutherans kind of picked that up. Um, and then the development of the LCMS, at, at some time, in some places, it was about four times a year, which is really, really depressing and sad. And then um, in most places, it was at least once a month. And then by the time you get, uh, after the 19th, there was a liturgical revival um, in the mid-20th century in parts of the LCMS that really brought back at least twice a month communion. And so then from there, more and more churches, as, as pastors are going back and like rereading the confessions and because the confessions say every Lord's Day, that the 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 um, where is that at? I think it's the Augs- apology to the Augsburg Confession says um, we should celebrate this every Lord's Day. So uh, as pastors read that and churches are kind of thinking about these things, um, more and more churches throughout the synod are going to every week. Um, like basically everyone in my seminary class that I keep up with went to a church that had twice a month communion and now is celebrating every week communion. So um, I think that's that's pretty indicative of what's been happening in the synod is uh, that churches are going to every week. So, yeah. When you're reading in the New Testament, you're reading like the epistles and you hear like Paul correcting or something, you kind of get the idea that these 
that this was done every time the people gathered together. So it wasn't even like in the New Testament church. It wasn't even just like weekly. It was every time they met. Yeah, uh, that I I think that's true. In the early church, they were meeting more than once a week, and they were probably celebrating communion every time they did that. I think that's historically verifiable. I'd have to go back and check some sources, but... Well, it's just how it feels when you're reading it. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, enough of all that. Um, man, we, we really got off on some rabbit trails. Eh? What's new? So, Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, 18, we got through a lot of 17 last week, so just as kind of a brief overview, Elijah is the king during the reign of Ahab, and Ahab is the most evil king of Israel. Um, who we covered extensively before. And, of course, his lovely wife, Jezebel, uh, who likes to murder prophets and uh, trick trick people into getting murdered by, by the king. Uh, and, you know, was a bell prostitute at one time in her life. Very, very lovely lady. And um, Elijah is called to speak against them often. And to speak to Ahab. And Ahab, of course, um, remember when I, I think when I talked about Ahab, I said he's, he's like a, kind of the modern, uh, modern effeminate man who can't handle his own household, right? His, his wife like runs his, his life and he just, he gets, he gets like emotional and sad whenever he gets told no about something and these kind of things, right? So, um, Elijah will often go to Ahab and tell him something, and Ahab will be like, "Okay, yeah, that's what I need to do." But then Jezebel will come behind him and and you know tell tell him that's not right, and he's like, "Okay, you know." So um, Ahab's kind of <laughs> worthless in that way, but um, but Elijah is is brave in speaking against these things. So the first thing that happens in 17 is that Elijah prophesies rain, uh, which we talked about James 5. And how um, James says that Elijah was faithful in prayer for prophesying rain and then for, uh, or sorry, prophesying a famine. And then he prophesies rain later on in 18, which we'll get to. Um, And then uh, the Lord takes him over to the uh, place called uh, Cherith and by by a brook where he gets to eat um, bread and meet in the morning and evening and where he gets to drink the water during the midst of this famine so he's taken care of and uh there's a lot of beautiful things there with the birds bringing him food and uh psalm 23 matthew 6 we talked a little bit about that so then the brook dries up and um and god sends elijah to a widow at zarephath and Remember one point I made last week, which I think is worth repeating, is that you notice Elijah lives day by day, right? Again, Matthew 6. Do not worry about tomorrow, for today has enough worries for itself. And, um, you know, he just goes wherever the Lord tells him. And um, he's like a uh, childlike faith um, that where he, he just trusts whatever the Lord says and, and goes uh, where he's allowed to go and he's taken care of. And it's, it's really amazing the faith that Elijah has in these things um, because, first of all, when he prophesied the famine, 
he didn't know that the Lord was going to send him to the brook, right? So he thought he would be experiencing the famine, and yet, this is, this is why James says he was faithful, is even though he's going to experience the famine, he gets to go, uh, he, he still prophesies the famine, even though he thinks he's going to have to experience it. And then the Lord is gracious and sends him to the brook. Then he goes to this widow at Zarephath, and if I was, if I was Elijah, right, I would think, oh, the brook's dried up. The Lord's going to take care of me. He's going to send me to this widow at Zarephath. And I would expect that when I got to Zarephath and I found this widow, what would, what would you expect? I'd expect a rich widow with a nice house, lots of food and drink, right, uh, if the Lord's going to take care of him. And he shows up, and this lady has a little bit of flour and a small jug that's almost out of oil. And she says, yeah, uh, Welcome to our house. I'm going to go make this small piece of bread so me and my son can eat it, and then we're going to die. Uh, it's going to be our last meal. We don't have anything else. And the famine's still going on. Right? So um, it's kind of amazing that Elijah doesn't, like, freak out. You know, Elijah does have one moment of kind of weak faith um, later on when uh, he goes and hides in a cave and he thinks, I'm the only one left. Right? There's no one of faith left. Um, and then the Lord prophesies the remnant for him. But the, the he, he gets to this widow at Zarephath, and he says, uh, okay, that sounds good. Make me some too. <laughs> it's, the Lord said it's for me. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I've never gone to a, a poor person's home and said, uh, yeah, the Lord said you need to give me 10% of that. You know? um, I, maybe I should try that. <laughs> but um, it's a, it is a good stewardship lesson that... Oh, so first of all, what happens, of course, you, you know the story, is that um, Elijah says, it's okay, the Lord said he'll provide. Go ahead and make it. Give some to me. And until rain falls, the jug of oil will not run dry and the flour will not um, run out. And... And it, and it happens. It's true, right? Um, it just keeps... I don't, I don't even know what this... I want to know what this looked like. Did she just like pour the oil out and then like sit it on the counter and turn around and then boom, like there was more oil? I mean, I don't know. I guess so. Um, did she get to like watch it fill up? I mean, that would be cool. I don't know. But um, it is a good stewardship lesson that... And, and this is the, um, uh, the... The woman... Where is that in the Gospels? Um, I know it's in Matthew. I'm, I'm pretty sure the 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 woman who puts the penny in the in the coin box at the temple when all the Pharisees are putting you more in, um, but they're not really actually giving like proportionately to what they have, and then the the woman puts in all she has, right? And this is why you know this is one of the reasons that I'm not really afraid to talk about tithing um, and saying you know, kind of boldly that I think people should give 10% of their income to the church because, um, you know, oftentimes you'll hear pastors try and qualify that a lot. Well, like, if you don't have a lot, that's okay. You don't have to give as much. And, I, you know, to an extent, I think that's true. Um, and, and we do need to be so, somewhat thoughtful about these things and how we talk about them because tithe, the, the 10% tithe is not a law that Christians are bound to in the New Testament. 
Um, that that's an that's a Old Testament ceremonial law, and Christ has fulfilled that, and we're not bound to that anymore. So we don't want to be legalistic about it. But the stewardship lesson here is that even if someone is poor, right? Even if someone doesn't have a lot, uh, it's still worth giving to the Lord, right? It's the Lord will still bless and provide uh, for those who are poor and give. I mean, like. Whether you have a little or a lot is not really an excuse to not give proportionately, right? And that's why it's proportionate. Because if you don't have a lot and you give 10%, well, that 10% isn't a lot really either, right? Um, it's like a flat tax, right? So it's, it's proportionate. So anyway, um, but it, so that's just something to think about that, um, that the Bible never says, you know, you're kind of off the hook for stewardship if you don't have a lot right um that that there is there is actually a great faithfulness in giving even if you don't have a lot um and and being a faithful steward so uh so that 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 happens in chapter 17 and then um okay so then following that in 17 we kind of got to that point last week uh so elijah's kind of just sticking around uh, he's he's living at this widow's house. Um, she's taking care of him. They're eating the they're eating the the bread every day, and all of a sudden, the woman or, or the son of the the widow becomes ill, and uh, he dies. He stops breathing. So there's verse 17, 17, 17. After this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. The illness became worse until he stopped breathing. Um, and the, the widow gets angry at Elijah and she says, what is, what is this? What have you done? Um, right? Because she sees Elijah as this powerful guy, right? He's Elijah's the, the, the way that God allowed the, the bread and the oil to be there. So what's this issue between us, man of God? Uh, have you come to remind me of my sins and to kill my son? Right, so she thinks this is some kind of punishment uh, for for things she's done in the past. Uh, now from God, and um, yeah, it's it's kind of amazing here. Elijah doesn't like argue with her, right? Because Elijah could have said, "Well, these things happen, right? And your son is now with the Lord, and you should rejoice in that, and you should." You're, you're going to grieve, but it's going to be okay. Right? He could have just comforted her, kind of, you know, reminded her of the promises of the gospel. He could have, he could have done a lot of things. Right? Or he could have just said, or he could have said, hey, it's not my fault. I didn't kill him. Right? I can go find another widow to eat her bread. You know? Uh, he could have done a lot of things, but instead he just says, bring me your son. And... Um, this is this is kind of I like the way that First Kings, uh, the the story of Elijah, First Kings seventeen eighteen, is written because it never, uh, unlike with Moses, right? So in Exodus, um, Moses constantly argues with God, and you and you hear the prayers, and you and you and you hear the 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 Lord coming and speaking to Moses, um, and with Elijah, you don't get any of that. You just get the like earthly perspective. 
You don't hear what God said to him. You don't hear what he prayed. And like back to that James 5, when, when James is talking about Elijah, he says, oh, well, Elijah was so faithful in prayer that the Lord sent the things for which he asked. But when you actually read 1 Kings, all he does is prophesy. All he does is say, here's rain, here's not rain, here's a famine, right? Um, so it's kind of interesting that it's just, you just go like action, action, action from thing to thing that Elijah does, and you don't actually hear how the Lord commanded these things. Obviously, Elijah is praying, and obviously the Lord is commanding these things, but uh, you, you don't actually get that in the story, so it's um, kind of fun to read in that way. Anyway, so he just says, bring me your son. And he took him and carried him upstairs where he was living, and he laid him on his bed. Um, oh, and I take back everything I just said, because he does, he does pray to the Lord uh, right here this one time. Um, it's, it's still not to the extent that you hear with Moses, where you get these big paragraphs of back and forth between Moses and God. But um, he says, Oh, Lord, my God, have you sent tragedy on this woman with whom I am staying by killing her son? Um, so he does have this, this, this moment of lament. But then immediately we're back to the action, right? So then he's, and, and we don't hear God's response, right? God doesn't say, okay, here's what you're going to do. Like you, in, in Exodus, again, just to use that example, God says to Moses, take your, take your staff, strike the water, right? Here's what you're going to do. Here we don't get that. We just get what happens, <laughs> Uh, he stretched himself on the boy three times and he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's soul return to his body. And the Lord listened to Elijah and the boy's soul returned to his body and he came to life. And then Elijah took the boy and brought him down to the house from his upstairs room and he gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Okay, so... Um, a couple things here. Uh, one, Elijah, so Elijah does lament. And, and, and we, we'll also get to the point eventually where Elijah is in the cave, right? And he cries out to the Lord. So Elijah is, is great and he's a very, very faithful prophet. Notice faithfulness does not equal uh, never doubting, right? I think... I mean, oftentimes we get this um, idea in our head that faithfulness is when we're so confident, and I would even say prideful, in our ability to handle things, right? True faithfulness is not like that. True faithfulness is being ready to cry out to the Lord when you need him and uh, being in constant prayer like James says Elijah is. And um, so, so that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing here that is worth noting is that the stretching out over his body three times, and again, it is unclear as to whether or not the Lord told him to do this, or if this is just something that he thought was the right thing to do, or if the Holy Spirit came upon him and caused him to do it. Uh, don't really know, but um, this is uh, very baptismal, in, especially with the sense that it's three times. Right, and that we have this death to resurrection, this death to life uh, movement going on, and so uh, there's the prayer to the Lord. He he. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? You get this kind of idea that this is baptismal. Um, 
And there's also, um, is that Elijah or Elisha? I think that's Elisha. And Naaman, uh, later on, when uh, Naaman is, washes in the Jordan River seven times, uh, that's also very baptismal. So um, I think that's Elisha, though. So anyhow, yeah, you get these... Uh, You get these stories with these prophets in the Old Testament that are foreshadowing uh, the washing of regeneration by the waters of baptism, which is all really great. So, um, any questions on anything in 1 Kings 17? We'll get to uh, 1 Kings 18 and the prophets of Baal next time. All right. In that case, let's, uh, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good that you have sent to us. Uh, we thank you for baptizing us and for calling us your own, for giving us the threefold washing of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we may be called by your name. Uh, we pray that you would uh, help us to receive today your Lord's Supper faithfully and we pray that our worship would be in spirit and in truth and that the minds and hearts of all who are here uh, would be open to the hearing and the uh, living out of your word which you will give to them. We pray all of this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Jesus equated...